Welcome to the New Thinking for a New World podcast, where we explore the most pressing issues that are challenging and changing our societies. We are looking for new thinking and new solutions wherever we can find them. Listen as host Alan Stoga, the Talberg Foundation's chairman, challenges his guests for analysis, ideas and actions. Together, we can help make our world at least a bit better. We live at a time of profound change. Yesterday is no longer the best predictor of tomorrow. For anyone who doubted how fundamentally our world is changing, the global pandemic was a catastrophic proof point. Even as we in the West become more conscious of inequalities that have been part of our societal fabric for a long time, we're becoming less sure of our identities. Even as technology breaks down borders and barriers, many of us are retreating to our tribes, becoming ever more local and isolated rather than global and engaged. All of this informs and transforms our culture. If art is a window on the soul of a nation, what does ours look like? Who do we define loosely as the West, think we are in the sense of identity? What's our mood? My guests today have unique places from which to observe and then maybe even to shape a bit the culture. Shireen Nishat is an acclaimed Iranian visual artist who has lived and worked in the United States for decades. Jonathan Burnham was born in London and is currently the president and publisher of the Harper Division at HarperCollins in New York. Welcome. I'd like to start at the meta level. Soaring rhetoric during the pandemic was all about our shared humanity and we're all in this together, which sort of seemed to have turned out to be more like the soundtrack to frantic national and individual efforts to save only our own skins. What do you think that says about the state of our culture? Jonathan? Yes, I think you're right. I think the pandemic actually sort of shone a very strong light on divisions that were there already, some of which we were very aware of, others of which we perhaps were choosing to overlook. And its effect was to expose them in a very powerful and raw way. And indeed, I think we saw what, what you're alluding to, this kind of schism breaking out at every possible level, um, exemplified you know, most closely to home for us living on the East Coast of America by the idea of the essential worker and the non-essential worker and that division. And then, of course, the uh, outbreak of racial unrest, the killing of George Floyd, and what ensued from that. And we you know we saw we saw an extraordinary splintering, which then played out through the political cycle as well. And we're left in a sense, I think, look at, you know, examining the pieces still and trying to understand where to go from here in our different tribes. Shireen, um, we talk a lot about wanting to be global and humanity, and people use the word we as though we are something that's bigger than us, but we tend to behave quite small. Did, did that surprise you during the pandemic and after the pandemic? Well, I have to go back to um, explain how I approach um, life and art in general is that um, I personalize um, the journey that I go through as a human being and I, I, my work becomes a sort of an expression of what journey I take dealing with those crises. And, um, 
and I, I don't know how it is for the other artists, but I've felt that all my life I've had to approach political crisis and just important issues that have transformed my life very often. And so I've had to learn to be a survivor. And therefore, um, as I approach coming out of this dark tunnel that I often find myself um, as an Iranian artist living in exile with a difficult past, um, I, I then make a work of fiction that somehow helps other people to identify with sort of my pain or my journey. And therefore, I feel the art or the fiction becomes this meditation or this, this um, relationship between myself and my audience um, by sharing where I went in, with my journey coping with the crisis. Um, therefore, you know, they can look at their own, you know, way of approaching it and, and at least on the emotional level. Um, and so it's very hard for me to generalize about culture at large or, you know, different artists. It's just this has been the way that I have been able to be an artist, to to face my own anxieties, fears, angst, um, you know, and hopes and, and, and really fall very deep in that dark tunnel. Um, but find that my imagination actually is my savior and and finding hope in in creating work that resonates with me but possibly could inspire and provoke other people but never is a sure thing but that's the way I approach um, dealing with crisis and and I think my work um, it's really a manifestation of that let me pick out one word that you used which is identity you had a fabulous retrospective at the Broad in Los Angeles, and then that moved on to the Museum of Modern Art in Fort Worth. And the description talked about your exploration of identity. When you had to put together a retrospective, 30 years of your work, did you sense a shift in how we think, or how you think, perhaps in the first instance, about identity? It's a very interesting question because, you see, I'm quite a hybrid of an artist. I've um, lived longer in the United States than I've lived in my own country, and yet I'm quite Iranian and I'm also very American. And and so um, my work, like myself, it sort of navigates between two completely different identities, but also identities that are often in conflict, you know, um, not compatible. And and so um, and I, I did mention that my work is very personal, but it's also deeply political. Um, so I, I'm not interested in making work that is autobiographical. Very, very often, my work deals with history, and and so the question of um, bringing forth um, historical references that is really going back to Iran, but then finding that actually. Um, some of those ideas, um, some of the issues that have happened there are taking place in this country uh, and, and finding these sort of parallels. And so I think that in these exhibitions you're talking about, as much as the exhibitions or my work is sort of um, promoted as this Islamic artist or this Iranian artist, um, I think there was quite a bit of themes and ideas and emotions that really um, resonated with people on a fundamental existential level, even political level, the idea of displacement, 
um, alienation, um, political tyranny, injustice, um, and, and, and mysticism and, and, and the poetry uh, in light of very dark historical events. So there's all kinds of issues that on the surface seem to be all about this Iranian identity, um, but somehow it's sort of um, people identified with it. Jonathan, let's stay with identity for a second, if we could. I don't recall a time when Americans and others seem more confused about who they are. Gender, race, ethnicity, fundamental categories seem to be in flux. Uh, You're in the book business. Do you think your audience is changing in a way that matters? Can you you see it in what people want to consume and what your authors want to produce? How, How do you think about this? hyphenated America that that's evolving? Well, I, yeah, I, I think it is a hyphenated America and it's a hyphenated world actually as well. Um, it, it, it operates beyond America and it, it ebbs back and forth a great deal, I think. But America, as in so many, so many times in, in history, seems to be stepping forward kind of more vigorously in, in pursuit of arguing about the question of identity. And um, I, I, in my business, where I have to navigate what I th- believe readers will want to read, not right now, because I'm not publishing a newspaper or a magazine or, or, or um, anything online. I'm publishing books that I'm projecting into, you know, the next year, 12 months hence, um, sometimes a little sooner, but in most cases ahead, of, ahead of, about one year ahead. I... I'm, I'm discovering that the there is a very very vigorous and serious audience that's thinking about this idea of new identities forming themselves across race, across gender, across nations, and uh, writers are, are, are coming forward, stepping forward as, as artists like Sharon to kind of explore these questions sometimes through facts, through reporting and thinking it through analytically in nonfiction, but I think often most creatively and importantly through fiction. And I think we'll see, we're beginning to see the fruits of this new alignment of identity right now in some of the fiction that we're seeing published and being read eagerly, certainly by many sort of younger readers. But I think in the next two to three years, we'll see an enormous flowering of this because I think it's it's in many ways a deeply positive new new force in our culture that we have to pay attention to. So in terms of this focus on identity, thinking about identity, you would argue that it is a positive, it is a freedom that allows us to explore outside constraints as opposed to reflecting deep angst and uncertainty in the society. I think it arises at certain levels from deep angst, but I think it can also be perceived at another level as a kind of reassertion of confidence and faith in in a in a future where people can have the right to choose identities that are difficult and complex. Um, I mean, I'm thinking specifically right now about gender or sexuality, but it applies in other spheres as well. And yes, I know I see that as a very positive direction for redefinement and realignment and it's a complicated journey and you know my my role is simply to watch it carefully and try to understand which writers are coming to closest to the, to its nature and then to 
help them to be published and publish them well. But um, no, I see it as a, as a positive force. I'm glad you mentioned nonfiction and fiction, because I'd like to explore that a little bit, both in terms of books, but also more generally in terms of the society. One could make the case that we live at a time when the boundary between fiction and nonfiction, and, and I don't mean the, the truth stuff, I mean fiction and nonfiction, the boundaries are blurring. We just had a cartoon for a president. Um, the book lists are bursting with tell-alls that sound like fiction, not like reality. Um, there's some amazing uh, video and artwork being done. Shireen, you operate, I think, on both sides of that border, what I would call fiction and nonfiction, um, in the sense that your work seems to have a foot in both. Yes, for the longest time, I, I only made um, fictional work. Um, and then about a decade ago, I was invited to do a commission. Um, and I went to Egypt and I started to, for the first time, find myself um, as a reporter, sort of, um, where I would say the work became like a docudrama, where uh, I recruited um, Egyptians after the revolution, uh, the Egyptian revolution, um, and I, I began to interview them and photograph them, learn about their dilemma, and 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 really share also my story and allow them to trust me, and 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 this became incredibly. Um, powerful um, bonding between me and my subject. And that became very addictive, where I no longer wanted to bring people to my studio or models or friends, but go out and recruit people. Um, uh, and, and so my last project you just mentioned is both a movie and photographic project and video called Land of Dreams. I actually went to New Mexico and I went door to door, or I, I basically collected people who would be willing to let me uh, photograph them, but also interview them and collect their dreams. I mean, that was a highly, you know, um, sort of conceptual project, but I was interested in uh, an idea of what is American people's nightmares these days and what are they dreaming about? Um, and, and of course, people were very shocked, but also very amused. And, and, and so... Um, I had to first appeal to them, and they were actually people who were functional, not functional, poor men, women, old, young, children, Native Americans, African Americans, white, Hispanic immigrants. And so the diversity of people that I um, had to talk to and get to know, it was so much unlike anything else I've ever done, um, where I felt that there was a sincerity, there was an honesty, but yet they were making fiction. Um, this was a work of art, but but it was founded in real material, and 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 I mean, just I I I don't think that I could ever you know completely let go of um, developing ideas that somehow takes me to encounter real people um, dealing with real issues, and that somehow maybe that was for myself facing some of my own issues that by meeting other immigrants and other people really helped me face them. But um, yeah, it's, it's become very interesting to approach documentary in that way. Sure. And I'm, can I ask, I'm curious, sure. um, did you, how did you explain to your subjects what kind of project they were, they were participating in, in terms of that line between, you know, nonfiction truth and, and then your imaginative working of it? Yes, I have to say that first I had to make a good introduction of myself. I would bring a book. Uh, I would explain uh, my own history as an Iranian living in 
exile. Um, and let's say for the Native Americans, they never met an Iranian before. I never met a Native American. And and we, we began to share our history. And actually, we found we had so much in common, um, how um, we felt all of us so displaced. And, 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 and um, you know, we began to talk about some of these elements. And then slowly, when I said about my obsession with dreams and how I truly believe that dreams are a projection of our fears, our anxieties, and they're quite universal and they cross all kinds of boundaries. And I'm just so eager to know what are they thinking about? What are they dreaming about? And, and I, you know, I, you know, of course, um, there were people who literally just came to, for a little money we were offering, but they even opened up. Um, there was something about the sincerity of the artist bringing um, herself to um, to their level and just saying, look, uh, I'm, I want to be your friend and I want to hear your story. And it just, it, I, I can't even describe it. Um, it, it was really um, a very incredible experience. That's a pretty conservative part of the country. Uh, what was your overarching impression of the people? You, you said before that you, you mentioned the honesty, the, the willingness to open up. Uh, the willingness to talk to someone they didn't know about important things. What, what What's more personal than a dream? Yeah, I mean, I have to say that I was very conscious that I was going to New Mexico, which is one of the poorest states in America, um, and, and demographically one of the most diverse. Um, and, and, and that, of course, the landscape so much um, resembled my own country. Um, so there was romantic ideas, there was political uh, ideas, and my idea was really to, 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 to create a sort of a portrait of America in the way that I saw it, um, in the pain and the good and bad. Uh, and I felt that I could focus in one state and bring together people of diverse ethnic um, and religious backgrounds and, um, and also economic backgrounds. Uh, and 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 be able to talk to all of them, to photograph them, and I even went door to door um, to people's homes and introduced myself and asked them if I could uh, film in their house and they, if they could play in the film, uh, and and they did. Uh, and I, I was told, for example, never go to a reservation, uh, and and that they are very unfriendly to outsiders or people who are making art. It was just the opposite. Uh, and I think is that um, there was this level of transparency uh, and the humanity about this project and, and, and that they trusted me, that I was also very vulnerable, especially uh, at the time that we were going through the election and actually was during the pandemic um, and, and that we were all on the edge, um, incredible amount of discrimination, racial discrimination. And, and uh, you know, my subjects were all on the edge like I was. So we were able to share our stories, our anxieties. And, uh, but the main focus was, tell me your dream, your latest dream. What are you thinking about? What are you dreaming about? Uh, and that was really beautiful. If you feel that the world lacks global leaders, please help support the Talberg Foundation programs. Individual donations are being accepted at talbergfoundation.org slash donate. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org slash donate. Jonathan, I'd like to go back to something you touched on a couple minutes ago. Your job, by definition, is to try to bring to the market projects which will be interesting, not today, but 6, 12, maybe even 18 months from now. That means you have to somehow 
have a sense of the zeitgeist that's good enough to make those choices. Uh, how do you do that? Well, um, you have, well, I mean, actually, you have to work with a group of people from as diverse backgrounds as possible um, who are representing different areas. I can't possibly be a kind of universal weather vane um, in every field. I publish, you know, a lot of books in different areas, business and health, uh, general nonfiction, politics, science. Um, but I have a, a team of unbelievably smart people who navigate those fields and pay very close attention to what people are thinking about and what they believe will be still significant in a year's time or two years time, sometimes even three years time, sometimes, you know, major book projects often take a long time to, to, to research and develop. Um, but to be frank, it's often a question of luck. It's often a question of just the right book at the right time suddenly catches the spirit. I mean, one, one, I think good example of that is a, is a, is a memoir Harper published in 2016 called Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance, which was a memoir about growing up in a very poor part of um, Appalachia, but it was about blue-collar America. Um, an extraordinary piece of work. Um, probably at a certain another time, its sales might have been strong, but not extraordinary. But it caught this, um, you know, bushfire of interest um, with the ascent of Trump, um, and essentially, I think the you know the the the, the liberal the liberal part of America trying to understand the other part of America. And the best way to do it was by reading Hillbilly Elegy and through an intimate personal experience. This probably, this actually connects in a way to Shurian because it, it comes down often to like to one life and one personal experience. They were able to come to terms with what was going on as far as they could. Um, and of course the book became an enormous bestseller and, and then a movie and so on. It was a, in a sense, a cultural phenomenon, but it, to say that we planned that would be ridiculous. It it just there it was. Now, if if there's maybe there may be some sort of deep currents at work in people like my editors who make these decisions, who unconsciously are being driven towards those things. I maybe that's true, but in many cases, it's 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 just the right book is there at the right time. Let me pull on one thread. You just said that parts of America were trying to understand the other parts of America. And if that's true, I would think that's wonderful. And a bit of Shireen's story of, of, of her project, almost the same theme, that people wanted to talk and wanted to reach out to each other and somehow understand better. Do you think that's the case, that this very zero-sum world, black, white, Bruce Springsteen on, on Broadway the other day talked about troubled times and, and troubling times. Um, is there something, is there a positive out there? Do, do people want to try to get beyond this? Well, um, I tell you one thing, uh, especially um, in the past year or two or maybe longer, um, there's a real need for content um, where I feel that um, previous to that, whether we're talking about the art world or the film world, um, it became sort of entertainment. And I think hard times, um, you know, do have some positive aspect to it where, um, people really uh, need to communicate. Um, um, the culture becomes, as you know, really central to people's everyday life uh, in, during the time of crisis, more than ever. 
and and I, I and I think I could use the example of my country in Iran, where after the revolution, with the censorship, no freedom of expression, no support, living under dictatorship, we had more of a cultural outpour than ever in the history of modern time, and and I think that both for the artists and the community, there was this. Uh, need of somehow making sense of the chaos, or you know, making order out of things to, to cope with things, and and I think this division um, that I I see and I saw, especially in America, I, I've seen very vividly in my country. Um, but somehow I think the value in art or good art or artists is that they are not biased and they are able to transcend or elevate above those kind of differences and their work may um, resonate with a diverse kinds of people and uh, where for example a lot of people say oh you're just talking to the liberals or you're talking to the republican conservative but i think really good art good piece of culture great book music theater it can speak to a diverse um communities and that's really precious um, because we artists don't have an agenda there is no rhetoric we have nothing to say except raise a lot of questions. And that's my my approach to art. Anyway, I have no answers. I'm a very fragile, vulnerable, fearful person, and I'm being really naked with my own um, humanity, and I'm, I'm framing questions that, you know, I'm very interested in sociopolitical issues, history, religion, um, political injustice, all of that, and I'm trying to sort of articulate an expression that goes above and beyond myself, of course, and, and to put that out there and, and let's see if other people may identify. And so I think that's what's great about the role culture plays, particularly in time of crisis. Jonathan, you have to, by definition, navigate the cultural wars, the political wars, the partisanship. You're going to publish a book by X on Y, and it could attract all sorts of lightning, bomb throwing, whatever. How do, how do you make those decisions? Um, to, well, I think, you know, my, 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 my role is, 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 is really, I mean, essentially it breaks down into two, it has two sides. One is to publish good books that, you know, deserve to be read by serious writers that will make a mark and will be read, one hopes, in 10 years' time, 20 years' time, even more. I also have to make money. I also have to run a business which is profitable and balance all the various factors that that involves um, by publishing books that I hope will, you know, become some of which will become bestsellers. So that on both sides means I really I have to be open to a lot of very different trends and arguments. I I can't say this. I will only publish books of this of this stripe, and I won't publish books of that stripe particularly as the culture changes and as we see it changing now. The problem, of course, for a publisher and anybody working in the media right now is how sort of, as I go back to my original point, how sort of schismatic it's all become. We're really really deeply splintered. And it's complicated for a media entity to really cover both sides and keep everybody contained and fulfilled and not frustrated and angry. But that's, I believe, what we should do. Otherwise, we would see, you know, um, book publishers publishing only for a certain part of the country. I want to push that forward a little bit because there have been, and we are in a period of 
book banning and burning, the cancel culture stuff. I just discovered this morning, which I should have known, I suppose, that the American Library Association reports uh, that To Kill a Mockingbird and of Mice and Men were among the 10 most challenged books last year in America as being inappropriate uh, for Americans to read in the 21st century, which is sort of astounding. This segues to the cancel culture question. It's people, it's art, it's statues, it's what do you both think about this? Is this process a good one of speaking truth to power or a bad one of giving into the mob or, or, or something else? Shall I go first? Yeah. I, I, yes, I do think about it. Um, I, you know, canceling books is a difficult thing to do. I mean, it can be talked about. It can be, it can be suggested. Um, it's hard to stop people publishing a book if they want to. Um, you know, there's, in a sense, there is no longer such a thing as censorship. If, if I and all the other major publishers choose altogether not to publish a book that we find, say, re genuinely repellent in its arguments, that author, authors could find a way to have that book published. They could publish it privately, they could make it available online, they could find a press somewhere that would publish it. So, in a sense, cancellation is, is a selective thing. Um, but I would go back to the point here that you're making about actually looking backwards towards what we consider our canon and books like Of Mice and Men and Kill a Mockingbird, which HarperCollins publishes um, and we're proud to publish. Um, and again, I have to say the movement towards this, you know, interrog interrogating the classics, the canon, and asking if they are the most representative stories that we should be reading seems to me to be a healthy one. Um, and if that canon opens up to books that weren't read before and need to be read now, and that will move into that sort of central place in an educational format, then again, we have to welcome that. It's all about more rather than less. And you know, To Kill a Mockingbird will remain available. It will always be there for people who want to read it. Shireen, we've seen political movements around the world destroy the, the great statues, the images of Buddha, others. And more recently, we've seen in, our, in the United States, and as well as in England and on the continent, uh, statues defaced, pulled down, covered up, etc. How do you as an artist react to that? Well, um, Alan, you know, I'm an example of, um, you know, an artist that has been sort of a victim to the Iranian government's decision that my work is problematic and therefore banned and even my own return to Iran is impossible. So, um, yeah, I mean, I come from a culture where, um, you know, a critique of my work or even the grasp of my work, it's very deeply problematic. Um, but also, um, you know, you were talking earlier about are we as artists conscious of our audience? Um, I, I would like to say no. Um, but at the same time, you know, what I have in my back is the multiplicity of the audience or uh, in the one hand, I have the Iranian government in my back. And since my family live in Iran uh, and I don't want to put them at risk, I would never want to, you know, uh, make anything so subversive that they will have problem. Then you have the Iranian people who, who could also are very divided. Um, some people, um, you know, support my work. Some people dislike the work. 
then in the American public where a lot of people misunderstand the work or they don't get the nuances or the political or metaphoric use of my work, then you have the art critics or film critics um, who, you know, may or may not, you know, be able to see the work for its entirety. So I've learned that I have to walk through these very fine balances um, and and expect that a lot would be lost in translation and that my work has often been very misunderstood and um, by the Western media, by Iranian um, people, by the government of Iran. Um, but so I, I, I've just learned to go along um, sort of moving through all these different opinions and these different misconceptions. And sometimes, if I'm lucky, um, very good um, you know, interpretations. Uh, and that's been a way of life where I think if you think about another American artist, a native, someone who's born in this country, won't have such an issue uh, in respect to their work. But I happen to have that as, and I think it's not just me. I mean, you think about any Iranian artist living in Iran or outside, uh, we're often dealing with fear of the government, fear of being harassed, arrested, you know, tortured, you know, I mean, um, and, and so that fear is very much in our psyche, even if we live outside. And it's quite unfortunate, but at the same time, at the same time, um, it really um, makes you feel that you're making art not just for the economic factor, not just for the success, but that you're really, truly a communicator to many different communities. And, and you take a great responsibility for that, even if often you fail or the work doesn't resonate. Thank you. Let me end with uh, an historic question. We are 100 years away from the Roaring Twenties. That was a time of enormous artistic creativity and innovation, but it was also a time when the great societies of Europe, and to an extent the United States, became unmoored. Do you see any parallels today uh, between this, the experimentation, the innovation, the willingness to try things, and indeed the deterioration of some of the fundamentals of our society? I don't know. I, 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 I thought about this quite a lot. I mean, it's, there, are, there are so many interesting parallels. Obviously, you know, the, 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 the devastating Spanish flu, we shouldn't forget, which I think killed 50 million people in, in, at the end of the, uh, 1919, um, is an extraordinary parallel for us to think about the, you know, the crazy, the stock market surging, the, this, this feeling now of people being suddenly here, being released from confinement um, as they become vaccinated. All these things resonate with ideas from the twenties. Um, but of course, as you said, the twenties were heading towards a very dark place um, unconsciously. And I, but I also think they were traumatized by the, the world war, which had, in the twenties, which have broken up, so and I think, in a sense, we too are dealing with all sorts of, in a way, ongoing traumas that have come to the surface in the last year. I think very powerfully, as I as I think, as I said earlier, that I I think can be traced back a very long way, particularly in in America in American history, and I think I think there's going to be a very complicated decade. To, 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 and I think if we can look at the 1920s 
and see sort of helpful guidelines. That would be something. But I'm not sure that that's really going to guide us. I think we're in, I think we're in very new territory now. Oh, and we learn lessons very poorly from the past because, especially in America, we don't actually like to consider the past. Shireen, how about you? Is there any comparison in your mind between that period 100 years ago, which could have ended so well and indeed ended so badly? Yes. First of all, I think it's a little too early um, to judge. I think we need some time. Um, I I do think that um, there is a shift you know, I can speak as someone who's involved with film and in with visual art. Um, I think that, you know, um, forever, for example, you know, people wanted to see film that were just entertainment, etc. Um, but I can see there's this shift uh, where people uh, are really looking for content. Hard time is, um, you know, uh, affecting people's uh, way of, you know, this idea of scape is not really... Uh, you know, so much um, functions the way it did before. Um, And in the art world, I feel that um, even artists themselves are really um, questioning their role in respect to the changing society and and, and the time of crisis. Uh, And we've had, God knows, so many different crises in the last year. Uh, the last year, particularly, so I, I, I. But I think that artists, um, you know, they need time. Things. Um, uh, uh, I think the um, how do you say the environment needs time, but also the the artists need time to to sort of digest what has happened on a very deeply personal as well as social level and and be able to articulate that into something. Well, thank you, and thank you both for this conversation. It has been uh, both fun and enlightening. And I would love to revisit from time to time, as Shireen, as you just said, as some of these pressures work through, and Jonathan, as you continue to try to sort through the future zeitgeist, we, we need good art. We need great books. Thank you both. Thank you, Adam. And thank you so much. A pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Please rate our show on Apple Podcast and subscribe. Meanwhile, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or you can subscribe to our newsletter at talbergfoundation.org to learn more about our work. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org. Thank you, and we'll be back again next week for another episode of Talberg's New Thinking for a New World. This podcast was brought to you through the generous support of SNF, the Stavros Nyarkos Foundation.